Well, good morning, College Park. I think you'll probably agree with me that the book of Psalms is unlike really any other book in the Bible. And I think that's one of the reasons why we love it so much. I'm sure that your life is similar to mine in that you've had some tough experiences. And in the midst of those experiences, the Psalms, unlike any other book, really minister to your soul. There are particular psalms that are sacred ground for me and my family, psalms that were up in our refrigerator during dark seasons, psalms that I even go back to now, and it brings back all of the memories of what that season was like, and I'm sure your experience is similar. But why is that? Why, why are the psalms so special? Why are they so helpful? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but I would suggest to you that one of the reasons why the psalms are incredibly helpful is because they are so honest. We love the Psalms because they give voice and verse to the pain in our soul. They, they, on the printed page, they identify what we are wrestling deep within our hearts, things that we're struggling with, pains that we're dealing. And what happens is that the Psalms address raw and sometimes, frankly, scary questions about life, about God, about pain, while at the same time they lead us back to biblical thinking. So today we're going to talk about, if you boil everything I'm going to say, it comes down really to three phrases. And so kids, if you're taking notes, here's what you should write down. It goes like this, life is hard, the Psalms are honest, God is good. Got that? Life is hard, life is hard, isn't it? The Bible, especially the Psalms, are gut level honest and God is good. And that's what we're going to see today in Psalm 10. I think, in fact, that's why we love the Psalms so much. The the psalmist is not afraid of tough questions. The Psalms are not afraid of of raw emotion and painful experiences. And the beautiful thing is, is the psalmist doesn't leave us there in those things, instead leads us back to God. The psalm serves a bridge between our pain and the power of God. So right now we're, we're launching into a new series on the book of Psalms um, called Honest to God. Last summer we looked at the uh, broad range of all of what the Psalms are and what they say in a series called A Song for Every Season. We saw the breadth of what God has for us in this book. And this summer we're going to look at some very specific Psalms that address really pointed questions. Questions that are challenging, questions that are emotional. Let me just give you a highlight of where we're going. We're going to look at these questions. Today, Psalm 10, why do you hide yourself? Then next week, or two weeks from now, why have you forsaken me? Then what is the measure of my days? What's the purpose of my life? Why are you downcast, O my soul, from Psalm 42? Man, you need that one. Why should I fear in times of trouble? Or the great lament Psalm, Psalm 79, how long, O Lord? Anybody tired? Been dealing with something for a long time. Psalm 89, where is your steadfast love? And then Psalm 137, how shall we sing the Lord's song? All of these psalms address very difficult and deep questions. And if you've not asked all of those questions in your lifetime, I can promise you that at one point in time in your life, you will ask some of them. The reality is, if you haven't experienced what we're going to talk about today, the pain of injustice... You just haven't lived long enough. Eventually, you're going to experience a scenario where someone does you really, really wrong. And one of the roles, I think, of good pastors, one of the roles of good preaching, is to prepare you for those moments when they come. To help you understand that life is hard. Life is hard. That 
the Psalms are indeed honest and that God is good. Whether it's personal conflict or an unexpected illness, the loss of a job, the death of a loved one, the betrayal of someone close, in those moments there needs to be an understanding of how to suffer. And the problem is, is that we often don't suffer well. In fact, there's two things that I have seen in my lifetime, experienced them myself and seen them in the lives of others, two things that we do when suffering comes. In the first place, we deny the reality of how hard it is. We, we, we simply want to pretend as though everything is okay. And so when someone says, how are you? We're like, well, I'm fine, just praising the Lord. And we find spiritual lingo. And, and, and one level, we need to be praising the Lord. But there's a level of denial of what's really going on deep within the soul, that there is this, this deep inner wrestling. And there's sometimes a mentality in a church that it's not okay to not be okay. To say, look, I'm not doing well. I'm really struggling. I barely could get here today. I'm just really wrestling. So there's a a denial piece. The other dynamic when it comes to suffering, and I see this as well, is not just denial, but dissection. You know what I mean? Where someone looks at their suffering and they got to figure out why. How did this happen? And, And figure out the equation as to how this took place because X plus Y equals Z. So there must be some connection. I must have done something wrong. There must have been some reason. And this constant wrestling with the why question can consume people. So on the one hand, you have denial, not acknowledging that it's really hard, dissection, trying to overanalyze it. And yet what happens in the Psalms is that I think the psalmist gives us a great model of how we should approach issues of suffering and hardship. The Psalms, like the book of Job, avoid these two pitfalls. And what they do is they deal honestly with the pain while at the same time pointing us to God. And that's why they're so incredibly helpful. So today from Psalm 10, what we're going to look at is this pain of injustice. This psalm is all about unresolved evil. And we're not exactly sure what the background or the setting was for why this psalm was written. Some are written because of national crises. Some are written because of personal crises. And this appears to be something incredibly personal. Psalm 10 is an important and helpful psalm because it speaks to something that all of us are familiar with or we will be familiar with at some point in our lives. Have you ever been wronged by somebody? Or have you ever watched as somebody you loved was unfairly treated? I mean, that's painful in and of itself. But what makes the situation even more challenging is when this person who has done you wrong or is doing other people wrong that you love, when they continue in their campaign of pain and they seem to get away with it. It's outrageous. It's frustrating. You want to make it stop. I mean, the pain at one level is hard to deal with, but the frustration connected with injustice is a pain at an entirely different level. I mean, it's one thing to hurt. It's another to be so frustrated that this thing isn't resolving itself. You've probably even thought in your head what you would do if you had the power to expose them, to stop them, and to punish them. And I'm really grateful you don't have all of that power. I'm grateful I don't have that power. I mean, because I've said, Lord, just strike them, right? You know how many dead people would be around the world today because of that power? I mean, seriously, you and me having that power would be dangerous. I'm glad you're not God. I'm glad I'm not God. The reality is, though, we're often left powerless. We're stuck between the pain of what's happening and the frustration of injustice. And so what do you do? The psalm talks about that. 
So what it does is it addresses tough, honest, emotional questions. What happens here is the psalmist turns his attention to God with some very honest questions. And this isn't theoretical. These aren't theoretical questions. These are very personal and real questions. Because the problem isn't just the pain or the injustice. There's even something more significant that's going on here. And it's this. Let me just put this on the table. It is that although there's pain and although there is injustice, you know full well that God could stop it and He's not. So your struggle is not just with pain and your struggle is not just with injustice. Your struggle is actually with God. You you might say, God, why don't you stop this? You have the power. You have the ability. Why don't you expose them? You're king and you reign over all things. You've done it before. Why not do something? And yet there's times when God doesn't. So what do you do with that? Well, the psalmist, with these tough, honest, emotional questions, he begins with two of them. And notice how personal they are. The first one, he says this, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? That's verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand away? This is a, a, a very emotional statement. I mean, just hear what he's saying. The, the psalmist is deeply troubled because God seems like he's too far removed from what is happening on the earth. I mean, it's almost like a child who's in trouble and their dad can see what is happening, but dad isn't coming to the rescue. Oh, Lord, why do you stand so far away? Psalmist even uses the word Yahweh, the word that means I am. You see in your Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the name I am. It was the name that God gave Moses in Exodus 14 when he's about to deliver his people out of Egypt. And he says, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, well, who am I going to tell is sending me? And God says, tell him and the Israelites, I am that I am has sent you. This is God's personal name, a name of power, a name of of, of deliverance, a name of glory. This name, this name Yahweh, this name I Am, was the name that delivered His people, delivered God's people from the clutches of Egypt, the most powerful nation in all of the world, and then made a mockery of their gods in the ten plagues. This name, this name Yahweh, this is the same God who who dwelt then in their midst, who led them in the wilderness, who inhabited the tabernacle, who filled the temple. This was the God, Yahweh, who delivered His people and defended them time and time again. I am Yahweh, Lord, Jehovah. The name means deliverer, that God is a rescuer, that He is the God who brings people out of slavery. But in this moment, don't miss this, but in this moment, this God who could deliver and who has delivered, the psalmist said, is far away. Why, O deliverer, aren't you delivering? Why, oh, rescuer, aren't you rescuing? He feels as if God is distant and removed and uninvolved. I want you to, I want you to feel this image. God's people are in trouble. And yet it feels as though God is unmoved, as though He is uninterested, and frankly, and this is where it's honest, it feels as if God isn't caring. The psalmist feels as if God isn't helping him any longer. Why, O oh Lord, are you so far away? The second question is even more loaded. He says, look at it in verse 1, Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? This complaint moves from passive, why are you so far away, to active. Why do you hide yourself? 
So it's not just that God is standing far away. Now it is, this problem, is the psalmist feels as if God is actually hiding himself. The word hide can mean secret, hidden, and concealed. I mean, when you feel like someone's hiding from you, isn't that frustrating? One of the games that we'll play as a family, we played a couple weeks ago at Savannah's request, is the hide-and-seek game called Sardines. Do you know this game? It's a fun game. Great family game. Great after-dinner game. If you don't know what it is, what what you do is one person goes and hides in the house, and then you search for them, and then when you find them, rather than yelling, hey, I found them, you hide with them. And it's a really fun game unless you're the last person who's all alone in the house. And you're wandering around feeling really dumb because you're like, where is everybody? And you know they're all snickering, laughing in some hot, sweaty closet somewhere like, ah, don't tell dad, don't tell dad. And I've wandered around the house many a time going, come on, where are you guys? Just waiting for someone to, you know, make some kind of song or something to let me, or noise to let me know where they are. And it's frustrating when you know that there's people, but they're hiding from you. And the psalmist here expresses this frustration. God, you're hiding yourself. But you know what? There's even more. Because this word hide can have even a more emotional meaning. It can mean, listen, to withdraw. It can mean to ignore. And it can even have the idea of being hypocritical. Pretending to be one thing while actually really being another. Does that make you a bit uncomfortable? That the psalmist talks about God like that? It should. Because he's basically telling God, look, I know you're God, but it doesn't feel like you're being very God-like right now. If you're not uncomfortable with this, then you probably don't really understand what the psalmist is trying to say here. He is really struggling. Not just with his pain, but he's really struggling with God. Injustice is one pain But God's lack of intervention is seemingly unexplainable. Why do you hide yourself? Why the silence? Why are you just letting this go? Don't you see? Don't you know what's happening? Don't you see all the people who are being hurt by this? And you're just doing nothing. That's what's coming out of this psalm. Let me just pause for a moment here and just give you two pastoral observations. In the first place... There are some of you who I know have experienced this pain of injustice. I mean, really, really great injustice. It has deeply affected you, but what's more, it's deeply affected your relationship with God. And I just want you to know that there are many people in church history, there are many people in the Bible, there's many people in this room who've really wrestled with God over these things. One of the mistakes I think you can make is to allow the enemy to convince you that just because you're struggling and wrestling with God's will, that somehow you've abandoned the faith. And I just want to tell you, you have a psalm right here who's really struggling. And just because you're struggling with really hard questions, like, why would God do this? Why would God allow this? Why wouldn't he stop it? Just because you wrestle with that, that doesn't mean you've abandoned your faith. Any more than Psalm 10. The psalmist in this verse has abandoned his faith. There needs to be room. Listen to me. There there needs to be room in the Christian faith for honest, heartfelt lament. 
The second pastoral observation, though, is that while the psalmist does this, he won't stay here. But I want you to note that he starts here. So can you cross the line into sinful thinking and sinful attitudes and be angry with God? Sure you can. But I also want to suggest to you that there's an important place where we are honest with what's going on in our soul, and the reality is God sees it anyways, right? But here's what I found. I have found that many people around those who are hurting are very uncomfortable with the hard, honest questions that people in pain ask. And therefore, they give them trite answers, or like, like Job, they try to defend God from what this person is saying. And I just want to encourage you that if you ever have to deal with a friend who's in a lot of pain or a spouse that's, that's really hurting, I just want you to be reminded that sometimes the people who are most afraid of those questions are not the people in pain, it's the people who are around those in pain. Because they want the pain to stop, they want the questions to stop, and sometimes it takes a while for that person to work through those things. And you, as a person trying to help them, have to walk through this deep, dark, and hard valley and embrace the fact that Psalm 10 is in the Bible, and it's in the Bible for a reason. Sometimes people we love are in verse 1, they're not in verse 16. And it's going to take them some time to get to verse 16, and you could be scared to death about how long it's going to take, and you also have to deal with your own fear along with the pain of the person who you're dealing with. We need a place in our understanding of God and suffering for the allowance of tough, honest, and emotional questions. Why are you so far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The next thing he turns to is the reality of the injustice and how frustrating it is. And I I love this section, verses 2 through 11. Because what we see here is that although the psalmist knows that God knows about all these things, there's something refreshingly helpful about him telling God about them. The psalmist pours out his heart to God, and he does this not to inform God, but rather he's doing this because he wants to ask God for help. And what's beautiful is as we go through the list, you will resonate with many things on this list. And the beautiful thing is, is that the Bible lives where you live. It speaks to the issues in your life. It's, it's right where we live. Notice verses two and four, two to four, that the psalmist is frustrated because of the outrageous pride of the wicked one. Verse two, notice all the inflammatory language and how it's connected to pride. In arrogance, the wickedly, the wicked hotly pursues the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not see him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So we don't know who the wicked man is. It's not personally identified. He's just described in this unidentified category as the wicked. And what it indicates here, verses, particularly verse 2, that the wicked person is oppressing the poor. He's oppressing the weak. There are schemes that are in play. There are plans that are still outgo- uh, ongoing. And while we're not told the sp- what the specifics are, the point here is that there is oppression, there is unfairness, and there is injustice. But on top of it all, and what makes it even more frustrating and outrageous, is the pride of the person who is doing it. There is an outrageous level of arrogance. 
And what the psalmist wants here is he wants God to do something. He wants him to stop the injustice. He wants him to stop the oppression. But even more, he wants for God to show the wicked man he's not God. Show him, God, that he's not in control of the world. Show him that he's, he's, he's way too full of himself. The wicked man is living as if he's above consequences. And this is incredibly grieving to the psalmist's heart. You, you ever experienced this? Somebody not only is doing something wrong, but they're doing something so wrong and they think they're so right. And it's just so frustrating. And you just wish that somehow somebody could get through to that arrogant brain and show them you are not so right. And yet the reality is you can't. But the psalmist pours out his heart about the outrageous arrogance of the wicked. Secondly, he talks about the frustrating success that comes. I mean, it's one thing for the person to be arrogant. It's even more frustrating when they're successful with it. It works. Verse 5. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. What makes the situation even more challenging is the fact that everything seems to be going well for the wicked. I mean, it's one thing if his life started falling apart, if his car kept breaking down, if he lost his job, but it's this progressive plan of prosperity that it seems as though his arrogance is working and and the result of this that's really frustrating is it creates a an evil sense of self-confidence verse six he says in his heart i shall not be moved throughout all generations i shall not meet adversity and it's just so frustrating because you look and you say god you, you could you could you could bring it all down right now. You could show him the error of his ways. You could make him trapped up in his own schemes. But instead, he's being seemingly blessed, seemingly successful. So there's outrageous pride. There's there's frustrating success. Third, so painful. There's abusive speech. One of the common weapons of injustice and oppression are words, and the wicked man uses his mouth to wage war on others. Notice. What verse 7 says, his mouth is full, is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. The, the words there mean, the NIV renders it as his, his words are filled with threats and trouble. So they're, they're, they're sneaky and they're destructive. And, and then it says that under his tongue are mischief and iniquity, meaning that his mouth is a churning cauldron of wicked statements just waiting, once he opens his mouth, waiting for hurtful and horrible words to come out. And what happens here is part of the pain of injustice are people who they use their words for unjust purposes. Unjust purposes. They create so much pain and there seems to be no end to it. So there's abusive speech. And then notice fourth, there is intentional oppression. Verse 8 through 10. The psalmist gives us a picture here of the extent of the activities of the wicked man. It's not just that he's doing these things, but he's doing them on purpose. There's a, a plan that's in, in view here. Verse 8, notice the language. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. Verse 9, he lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. 
I mean, the idea here is not just that the person is arrogant, not just that they're successful, not just that they use abusive speech, but they're doing it all on purpose. I mean, it's intentional. And notice the effect, verse 10. The the, the effect is the helpless are crushed, they sink down and fall by His might. That word crushed, that word crushed is an important word. It means to be broken. Some of you completely resonate with that. You know what that feels like. Somebody was so cruel to you, they either did something, they said something, something happened to you, and it happened on purpose, and it's like they stole a piece of your soul. You've heard that phrase before that you give a pound of flesh. So you'd have loved to have given a pound of flesh. It's the quarter part of your soul that you want back. And, and, and how you know that you're crushed is that when this person either is going to be a part of your life again or you're going to meet them or see them or someone says something that's similar to them, suddenly you fundamentally change. Something happens in your soul. Something clicks where you're just like, oh, and there's this crushed part of your heart. You, you're, you're crushed. You sink down. You fall by His might. And it's intentional. The, the evil of the situation is egregious, not because it's done by accident. I mean, accident would be one thing, but it's done with intentional purpose in mind. You know, as a kid, you kind of learn the difference between things that are done by accident, right, and things that are done on purpose. And you, you learn that there's a, there's a different level of emotion when something's done on purpose. For instance, you, know, you step on someone's toe by accident. That's one thing. Step on someone's toe on purpose, and that's a totally different gig, right? I remember when I, my, our kids learned this. Our, our twins were, were about four years old, and, and they began to learn the difference between things that happen on accident and things that happen on purpose. And they learned that when you do something by accident, it's not as bad, but purpose, that, that's like serious. That's, that's like really wrong. And I remember coming into their bedroom one time, and they were arguing about something, something that had happened, and one of them looked at the other one and said, well, yeah, you're a purpose boy. You did it on purpose called him a purpose boy you purpose boy right what's he saying there he's frustrated because it didn't happen on accident it was on purpose and some of you know exactly what i'm talking about when it comes to issues in your life you get a family or a friend a relative somebody in your past and you're like it wasn't that they did it on accident it's that they were straight up a purpose boy they did it on purpose they planned to do what they did and you know how painful that is Depression was intentional. And then verse 11, it's, it's also just egregious because there's no fear in them. Verse, verse 11 says, He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. There's no consequences. There's, there's no fear of God before his eyes. He says that the, the wicked man lives as if God is not even in the picture. I mean, just listen to the inflammatory language. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. The wicked man lives as if God is incompetent, as if he is uncaring, and as if he is impotent. The wicked man lives as if he is God. And that is what is so unbelievably frustrating. This is a pretty rough list, isn't it? I mean, some of you, when I'm going through this, there's feelings coming back because you can think of a name, a place, a situation, a person that, man, this has been your experience. And my guess is that 
All of us at one level have been on the receiving end of this kind of injustice. You know what it's like to feel totally frustrated at the reality of evil. I mean, you know what it's like, right, when you're traveling along the road and somebody just blows your doors off on the highway and you come over the hill and there's a police officer and you're like, yes! <laughs> you know, unless it's you, you're like, no, right? So you're like, yes! But isn't it frustrating? Someone blows your doors off and you're like, where? Why not right now? Or you wish you had the power, like to call on a ticket and write it to a, you know, hey, hey, citizen ticket, you know, wouldn't that be fun? We could just give each other tickets. That'd be great, wouldn't it? No, no thanks. It's one thing when we're talking about traffic and moving violations. It's another thing when we're talking about deep personal issues. When it just feels like someone is just getting away with murder. What I, what I love about this, friends, is that the Bible meets us really right where we are. I mean, this, this psalm lives where you live. It lives where I live. It gives voice to our pain. It gives voice to our frustration. Get this. The Bible enters your world. And it serves as a great comfort to us. What's more, listen to this. It's not just that the Bible meets us right where we live. Jesus met us right where we live. I mean, take Psalm 10 and and do the ark all the way to the New Testament to the incarnation of Jesus and realize that part of the reason that Jesus became man according to Hebrews 4, is so that we have a high priest who understands what it's like to live in our world, who knows what it's like to deal with injustice. And for that matter, gave us an example of how we should follow and obey and respond in injustice. In fact, look at this text. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. You need to see this in your Bible, exactly where it is. It needs to be marked. It needs to be a passage you come to because this will be a text that you will need at some point in time in your life. I promise you. First Peter 2.21 This is a compelling text about how to be able to make it. What do you, how do you think when you're facing all sorts of things that are unfair? Verse 21 First Peter 2, he says, For to this you have been called. To this is to suffering. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Oh, that's wonderful. But it gets even better. Verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. And then notice this, When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. And when He suffered, He did not threaten. So you're being reviled, don't revile in return. You're suffering, don't threaten. You're like, huh? How do you do that? Well, that's the whole reason why Jesus came and became a man. Because now you get to walk as He walked. And then notice what it says, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So what did Jesus do? He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus personally endured the frustrating reality of injustice. 
in order that you might have a example, an example to follow. So if you think in the back of your mind that injustice is absolutely winning the day, and if you think that there is no point to all of this injustice in your life, I just want to remind you that it was the injustice of the cross that created the possibility of forgiveness, which you now benefit by putting your faith in Christ. God can take your injustice that has happened to you and He can literally transform it for His glory and good, but you may not be able to see how it all is going to work out. In the meantime, you simply have to keep entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly, which means you say, God, I can't figure this out, I can't fix this, and I don't know what to do, but I'm going to trust that you are the one who's judging justly. For that matter, the older you get, the more older I get, the more I realize, you know, I'm not even sure about my own motives. How do I really know if I'm really doing something that for all the right reasons? I don't even know. Paul said he doesn't judge anything before the time. And so there's a sense in which you say, Jesus, I don't even know my own heart. And so I'm just going to have to say, you're the one who's going to have to judge justly. The psalmist could only hope in God, only hope in what God would eventually do in terms of making this injustice right. And we who live on the other side of the cross, we know what God can do with injustice. So, back to Psalm 10. There's there's great hope in the midst of all of this injustice. So what does the psalmist do? Well, here's, here's the recipe. Here's what he does. The first thing he does is he doesn't stay there. So we've gone through all these honest questions, and I want you to think that you just stop there, just ask all these hard questions. No, it's time to move, and there's a point at which you begin to, to, to move on and thinking things that need to be thought. The psalmist starts in his pain, but he doesn't live in his pain. He starts there, but he doesn't, isn't defined by his pain. He's moving on. And the first thing he does is he calls on God. Notice that he, he cries out to the Lord. He takes it out in prayer. Verse 12, Arise, O Lord! Oh God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. He calls on God to arise. So it's not just that he's talking about his pain now. Now his focus has shifted. This is always important when it comes to suffering. At some point in time, your focus has to shift from the circumstances and the injustice. And it has to focus now and shift on God. Arise, oh God. You're my vindicator. You're the one who's going to make this right. You're the one who alone can help me. He's asking God for help. Verse 13, the shift goes even further. He says, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Notice his focus is not just on his own circumstances, but God, this is about you and your glory. This is about your name. This is about your fame. And so the psalmist now is directing his attention towards who and what God is, and he calls on him. Notice what he does then secondly. Not only does he call on God here, but verse 14, he says, but you do see... You do see. What is he saying here? He's believing in faith. But God, you do see. I know that you see. He's preaching to his own soul. Even though he feels like God doesn't see, he's saying, no, 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 no. No, God, you do see. You do know. Verse 14, you note mischief and vexation. Listen, God has recorded every single thing that's ever happened. He's missed nothing. Nothing's missed on God. He sees it all. You note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. Notice, God, this, this is, you're the one who's going to have to deal with this. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. He is rehearsing that, God, you have been faithful over and over and over and over again. You have been the helper of the fatherless. This person, this psalmist, is preaching to his soul. 
In the midst of the injustice that's around him, he's acknowledging the reality of the pain, acknowledging the difficulty of the wicked person in front of him, but he's also clinging to the promises of God's word, banked upon what God has done in the past. Friends, this is why you have the scriptures, to remind you over and over and over that God has done great and amazing things. And even when he is silent for a season, it is only a matter of time until God begins to speak. And you want a great example of this? My best example would be the cross. The greatest, horrendous injustice ever done. And the Son of God dies, and then three days of absolute silence. And then, the Son of God rises again. So when he says, arise, O God, we think post-cross of the resurrection. Injustice, silence, resurrection. That is the model. That is what will happen. That's what the Bible tells us. We're simply right now in the silent season. Third, recall the trust in his judgment. The psalmist says, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. In other words, he wants God to break the power. He wants God to hold the wicked and the, the, the unjust acts, the unjust acts of those who have done these things against him. He wants him to hold them to account. And yet he is relying on the Lord to do it. Break the arm of the wicked, verse 15. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. In other words, God, take care of it completely. God, this is your issue. I trust in your judgment. This is the big faith step that makes all the difference in the world. If you're going to try and figure out why this bad thing happened to you, you're going to try and get your own revenge. You know what? Even if you could get your own revenge, it would never be enough. Never. You, you, you put pain in someone's life, it would never be enough because you'll never know if they've suffered the same extent that you have suffered. So you keep trying and trying and trying. It will never be enough. The ultimate resolution is not revenge. It is trusting in God's ability to bring divine justice again back to first peter 2 he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly he kept trusting the one who judges justly i'm told that amy carmichael a great missionary one time had some horrible things said about her and on a train ride to somewhere with the the kind of drumbeat of the train tracks felt the lord say this to her Let it be, think of me. Let it be, think of me. And I think it's great advice. Let it be, think of me. And then finally, he rests in the who. Verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man who is on earth may strike terror no more. Notice he ends with what I have called the who question. For those of you who weren't around for the Job series, there are two kinds of questions you can ask. You can ask why and you can ask who. And I would tell you the why question is not nearly as satisfying as the who question. In the book of Job, all these questions about why, and God never told him why. In fact, you know what? You don't want to know why. You can't handle why. But you can handle who. And with that, this psalm comes full circle. We began with an honest and hard question about injustice. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand so far away? 
Why are you so distant? Why are you so far away? Are you hiding yourself? And we end this psalm with a confident bowing before him in humble worship. The Lord is king forever and ever. And that's what I long for some of you, is to make that bridge from why do you stand so far away to the Lord is king forever and ever. And through this all, what we have seen, even in Psalm 10, little glimpses of the gospel that we can be reminded that God can take any injustice and he can use it for our glory, for his glory, and for our good. And the greatest example of that is what happened at the cross. This, this is why we love the gospel. <laughs> This is why we love the Psalms. Life is hard. Man, it's hard sometimes. It's really hard. The Bible's honest, just gut level, in your world honest, leading us to this final conclusion. God is good. That's how you deal with injustice. Life is hard. The Bible's honest. God is good. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us as we respond to you now. As we think about what it is that you're saying on this day, as in a moment we're going to sing, and just have some time to meditate on what it is that you're saying in these moments. We just invite you to search our hearts and to ask us some important and clarifying questions about who you are and who we are and what we think about the reality of suffering and injustice. So Father, help us today to just rest in the fact that we can keep trusting the one who judges justly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.